Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Barry Silbert, founder of Second Market, a private marketplace for buying and selling alternative assets, including private company stock, bankruptcy claims, restricted public stock, and structured products. Second Market provides liquidity to investors without having to access the public markets. Barry founded the company in 2004 after working as an investment baker at Houlihan Loki, Smith Barney, and Bear Stearns. He became a registered trader at 17 years old. Welcome. Thanks for having me. What is wrong with the United States public markets in the first place? What's really interesting is over the past decade, um, while people weren't really paying attention, our IPO market died a slow death. If you look back in the 80s and 90s, companies would go public uh, in four years or five years after they were founded, and they were, they were successful IPOs. If you look over the past decade, the number of IPOs has gone down 60, 70 percent. But what's even worse is if you look at the types of companies who can go public, you have to be a billion-dollar company nowadays. Back in the 80s and 90s, you could be a $100, 200000000 million company. So today it takes something like 10 years to go public, which... If you think about that from a founder perspective, from an employee perspective, from an investor perspective, it just doesn't work. It's just a broken IPO market. In the 1990s, uh, you had human brokers, and then there was this advent of online brokers. What effect did that have on the public markets? So in the late 90s, everybody started shifting to kind of do-it-yourself, you know, Meritrade, E-Trade trading. But what happened is by shifting all that money away from the brokers to the online trading, we essentially lost a 100,000-person-plus sales force that was calling on their customers to not just buy IBM or GE, but they were identifying kind of the, the next small cap company. And so once that shift started happening, we lost you know, really kind of the sales force for these smaller cap companies. Also, uh, didn't the fee that these brokers got paid decrease uh, with online painting so that there wasn't the same incentive to do research on these smaller companies? I think it was around um, maybe 2000, um, there was something called decimalization, which, which meant when stocks were traded, um, a lot of people will probably remember, they used to be traded in eighths and quarters. And so you'd buy it at $20 and you'd have to sell it um, at a tw- or, or 19 or 19 and a half, whatever it may be. And, and what happened is with decimalization is went down to pennies. And so that spread in between the, the, the bid and the offer went from 25 cents in many cases down to two, cent, two cents, three cents. And so, you know, a lot of people think, well, woe is me, Wall Street's making less money. And that, that is true. But the problem is that that spread paid for not just the people who are trading the stock, but research. And research is so important for the smaller cap companies. I mean, everybody's heard about Apple, everybody's heard about IBM. But when you're trying to identify the next hot company, you need research. And they lost the ability to pay for research because of that spread. In addition to the structural impediments in the public markets, you have uh, regulatory hurdles. Uh, In 2002, Sarbanes-Oxley had increased the compliance cost and the the process uh, for companies to go public, which was a further kind of complication uh, for private companies under, let's say, a billion dollars. I've seen estimates ranging from, you know, it's a few million dollars to kind of file to go public or through the process, but it's an additional two to three million dollars a year to be a public company as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley. If you are a company who only has two or three million dollars in profits, 
you lose it all to regulation. And so what ended up happening is companies had to wait to be larger, more mature companies with more profits before they could go public because they couldn't eat up their entire profit with being a public company. So we're talking about really companies less than a billion dollars who have been most affected by these structural and regulatory hurdles in the public markets. That's that's what what I've heard. Um, but I also think what's what's happened over the past decade is going public for entrepreneurs, myself included. It's no longer the pinnacle of success. Um, part of it has to do with some of the issues we've already talked about. But a lot of it has to do with just the fact that the public market is a casino. Mm-hmm. It's really all about short-term trading. You don't have investing anymore. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. If, if, if you look at if you look at the amount of time that an investor holds on to a share of stock in the public market in 1970, they'd buy that stock and hold on to it for five years. Mm-hmm. And that hold period has gone down by one year each decade. And today, it's a quarter, one, three months or less. So how does second market work? So Second Market is the the largest network of buyers and sellers of alternative investments. So what we do is we bring together the buyers and sellers in a regulated, transparent, trusted way and enable them to transact. The private market, um, which is certainly our fastest growing and the most popular, um, mainly because of Facebook having been traded on Second Market, um, is a market where we work with a company where the company creates their own market, their own rules. They get to decide when the market's open. So for a lot of companies, they don't want it open every day, every month. A lot of them only want want it open once a year, twice a year. They get to decide who's allowed to buy. So they keep total control over who their investors are, and they get to decide uh, who can sell. Prior to starting Second Market in 2004, you were working as an investment banker at Houlihan Loki in restructuring, and you were working with companies going through bankruptcy, uh, and you had creditors who had these claims. When during that process did the idea for Second Market emerge? I was there. I was about, I think, about five, five and a half years an investment banker, and I kept on identifying the need uh, where there were illiquid assets, something that someone had to sell. And here I was, a 24, 25-year-old associate responsible for selling off tens of millions of dollars of something. And I had zero Rolodex. And I was basically like, why is there no eBay for this? Like, why can't I log into something and find buyers? And so that was kind of the original, okay, here's an idea for a business. I've always been entrepreneurial and I always wanted to start something. So, So as I started kind of trying to put some kind of structure around the idea, private company stock kept on coming up. And then the big one for me was Enron. And so we were kind of responsible for picking up the pieces and selling off the assets and trying to get money back to the people they owed money to. And and this was a situation where we had to sell off pipelines, we had to sell off foreign companies, we had to sell off intellectual property. And it was just the most random things. And I, I said, okay, you know, this is this is this is a good idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to pursue this. And I, I put together a business plan um, that that was um, initially very focused on private company stock. But I, when I started sharing the business plan with the folks, um, the reaction I got from the people that I showed it to was, okay, here's a good idea for a business, but it is going to be so hard for you to be able to get to get buyers and sellers of private company stock together because there's no information that's, you know, who knows if it's a good company or bad company, why don't you pick something to start off with where there's information out there? And so what what I ended up starting off with um, in the second version of the business plan was um, restricted stock in public companies. And Mm. so basically it's stock that people have that they can't sell 
into the public market for various reasons. But you and I, if we wanted to transact, we could just do this, you know, a private transaction. At what point did you say, okay, I'm going to leave my my job and, you know, give this a real go? Or were you doing it simultaneously? Towards the end of 2003, I was really excited about starting my own business. I was a board investment banker. I sat down with my wife, who was a my actually just a girlfriend at the time, and I and I said, "Okay, Lori, um, I think I'm going to leave investment banking to go start a company. And I this, I have an idea for a business. This is what I want to do." And I remember her reaction, which she's always been incredibly supportive. She was like, "Okay, that that's great, but you know, are we going to like be okay financially? I think maybe we we're living together. We we're planning to live together." And I was like, "Yeah, I think we'll 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 be okay." And I made the mistake at that point of telling her how much I was making. And I remember her face. Um, she was a little shocked, but she was like, you know what? You obviously want to go do this. And so in, in, in 2000, January 2004, I got my bonus, like any good banker does. I put in notice. We went to Hawaii for two weeks, completely just you know decompressed, considered staying there, <laughs> and then came back and then kind of wrote um, what was the second version of the business plan. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Barry Silbert, founder of Second Market, an alternative marketplace for private companies. So if you're an investor in a startup or an employee who wants to sell your stock before the company goes public, Second Market facilitates this transaction. Companies trading on the exchange have included Facebook, Craigslist, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Zynga. Talk to me about the early days of the company. What did the company look like in that stage? And was it just you or who was on board with you? So, so I write this business plan. And the plan was I was going to go raise, um, I think it's $3 million, to go build the eBay for um, alternative investments. And the reaction I got at that point was, there's certainly an opportunity here, but why are you going to go spend a year of your life trying to raise this money, maybe be successful, probably not be successful, and then go spend another year of your life trying to build a technology platform when, when you don't really need technology to at least prove out whether, whether or not this is an opportunity? Did you agree at the time that uh, you didn't need technology to facilitate this? Given I didn't have a technology background, um, and I knew that um, just with relationships and having a telephone, I knew I could have success. I figured it was some pretty good adv advice. Okay, so no technology. So you essentially had a telephone and an Excel spreadsheet. Yes, and so instead of raising $3 million, ended up raising $300,000. And we think at that point, maybe we had a couple employees. And when we launched, when we opened for business in the, kind of the beginning part of 2005, it was just us and some telephones. And that was our market in, in air quotes. <laughs> But because we launched that way and we were able to get transactions done pretty quickly, not only did we have revenue within the first few months, but I think we were profitable within the first three months of being open for business. Now, you say we. Who is we? Um, there's a you know a sad part of the story. Um, the first person to join me um, with this business um, was a lawyer um, named Brad Monks that I worked with when I was a banker. In the summer of 05, he decided to, to join me. And so when we raised that money, that $300,000 was around the time that Brad was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. So um, young, young, young guy, um, he, he ultimately passed away a couple years later. But so, so Brad was kind of my first uh, partner. Um, and then we hired um, somebody who had worked at Goldman Sachs. We hired somebody that worked at uh, UBS. And then we hired um, a guy right out of college. For all of us, it was the first time we started a business. No technology background whatsoever. Describe to me some of the first deals. Like, what was your first or second transaction? There was an ethanol company 
uh, Pacific ethanol. That's mm. what it was. Um, ethanol was a really big deal for a few years. I think because there was, um, theoretically, it was going to be uh, an uh, alternative uh, fuel. Alternative fuel that the fuel that you know didn't contribute to pollution. And so there were a lot of companies being funded by by venture capital, by private equity funds in the space. But what was really unique about this company was that Bill Gates invested in it. And so Pacific Ethanol, it went up, you know, 100% or something crazy in, in a few months. And so we had a lot of people who had this stock um, who wanted to sell. There were a lot of people who were willing to buy it, especially at a discount. And so we did a number of transactions in the, with the Pacific Ethanol stock. And if I remember correctly, it's kind of fallen back down to earth. Who came to you or whom did you go to? Uh, you didn't have this robust Rolodex at the time. Here you are 20-something years old. We did it the old-fashioned way. For the first few months, it was really about just networking um, in the hedge fund industry. Um, I started speaking at conferences. And so early on, it was just banging down doors, picking up the phone um, and hustling. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Barry Silbert, founder of Second Market. We'll hear more from Barry coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Barry Silbert, founder of Second Market, an alternative marketplace for private companies. Companies trading on the exchange have included Facebook, Craigslist, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Zynga. You mentioned you raised $300,000 initially. Whom did you raise that capital from? There were a couple angels that um, Brad, um, uh, my first partner, uh, knew, and uh, you know the, the angel community in New York, um, you know, even today is still pretty tight. And so once you have a lead investor, others will typically follow. After this initial period, you went on to raise uh, millions of dollars of traditional venture capital, mostly from uh, Asian financial firms. One is actually the country of Singapore, uh, their investment arm, Tamasek, as well as uh, Lee Ka-shing, who is a Hong Kong entrepreneur. He's an entrepreneur, but also the wealthiest man in all of Asia, I believe. How did you get their ear? (laughs) So, so Li Ka-shing um, and his family office and, and, and the people around him um, are actually very, very active investors um, in technology. So they were an early investor in Skype. They were one of the first investors in Facebook. They were an early investor in Spotify. And uh, around the time that we started getting a lot of press around this market that we have created for private company stock and Facebook stock, I was introduced to um, someone there who is responsible for um, managing uh, uh, his, his technology investments. So the, the, this person flew out to, to, to meet with me, loved the idea, loved the opportunity, was, was especially excited about the opportunity for a second market in Asia. Uh, because there really there's a lot of great companies being formed um, out there that could benefit from a, a marketplace. But they said, you know, look, we, you know, we would love to get involved, but we also um, would love to get involved other local investors. And so, you know, a few phone calls later, um, um, I was on a plane to fly to Singapore to meet with Tomasek, which is uh, one of the one of the funds that's um, run uh, for the for the country. At what point then did you shift now that you had more capital from these Asian investors from really being a, f- a phone and you know Microsoft Excel driven company to more of a technology driven company? If you look back to um, 2005 when we launched, um, we were all manual, all telephone, um, basically brokering transactions. Uh, and we did that for about two years. And so in the first year, 2005, we did about a, about a million dollars in revenue. 
In 2006, we did two and a half million in revenue. And then in 2007, we were on like a $5 million revenue run rate. And incidentally, uh, you as a company are taking one to 5% of the total transaction value. And that was actually our revenue. And so we were doing um, 100, 200, a few hundred million dollars a year in transactions. And so that was the that was our, 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 our revenue. And so um, in uh, early part of 2007, uh, we were. I was approached by the venture capital firm here in New York named First Smart Capital. What they saw in us was um, was was the opportunity to build something very disruptive um, on Wall Street. Uh, I, they understood. They at the time they were part of a of a hedge fund complex, and so they saw how things were so opaque on Wall Street and how how Wall Street just controls the information and makes money off of it. And there was an opportunity to create a more transparent system. So we decided to take, uh, it took about a little less than $4 million in from FirstMark in the summer of 2007. And it was really at that time that we started building technology. So what does make you different from, let's say, another investment bank trying to replicate this private secondary market as a, as a prelude to an IPO? There are, I think, a lot of differences between what we're doing and the the Wall Street model, the investment banks. And I think that really kind of comes down to, number one is independence. We are not in the business of buying things that are traded on second market, so we don't compete with our customers. That's number one. Number two is we're all about transparency. And kind of the, the typical Wall Street model is not to be that that transparent. Given that, though, the barriers to entry are still quite low. The benefit that we had early on, and I think this still exists, is that you know, you know, w- w- our, our revenue um, is probably what Goldman Sachs does in five minutes. So uh, you know, while w- I feel we're just getting started, we're just scratching the surface. You know, I, I don't think that the Wall Street banks necessarily care about a certain area until it becomes large enough for them to really care. <laughs> and then it might be too late. It, it, and that's usually the case with marketplaces. Now, uh, second market trades on second market. <laughs> what is your frequency? How often do you allow in, uh, liquidity events, for example? So we're on an annual um, a frequency right now. So what it means is people who are investing know that they have to hold on to the stock for at least a year. Right. Now, who are some of those folks? So uh, the lead investor was um, a fund called Social Capital Partnership, which is a fund that a, a, a Facebook exec, um, senior exec, started. And the other investors that came in along uh, Social Capital was Yuri Milner, uh, a very uh, well-known, successful investor who was an early investor in Facebook. Um, Ashton Kutcher um, came in. He's a very and you know Ashton Kutcher. I don't think people necessarily realize, but he's really one of the most prolific and successful early stage investors out there right now. Hmm. Um, and then a number of other entrepreneurs uh, got involved as well. You have had your trading license, your Series 7, since you were 17 years old. And at the time that you got your license, you were the youngest trader to have it. Where did your interest in trading and in the financial markets originate? I think I've always been really in, interested in the stock market. I was I was the, the, the kid in in elementary school and summer camp who was looking at the stock pages. Um, I got involved in um, in investing, I think after my bar mitzvah, I took some bar mitzvah money and bought some mutual funds. I was just really kind of lucky in high school that um, I ended up working at a, at a brokerage firm that was very supportive of um, of me and my you know efforts to um, uh, better my career and and sponsored me to take this test, the Series 7 test. And, you know, so it, the Series 7 test, it's like a 
three, four-hour tests that people have to take to be essentially stockbrokers. From what I understand, I was the youngest person ever to pass it, um, but I've, I've, I've heard recently that I, I've lost that title by mm. a few months to somebody. <laughs> Why were you interested in the stock market? Was it because you wanted to make a lot of money? What was the appeal? It's a, it's a great question. I don't, I don't, today, I don't really find myself to be very materialistic. I don't really care much about money, but of course, it's easy to say that once you've created you know, at least paper <laughs> wealth. Um, you know, I'm not a big gambler. Um, although I do enjoy an occasional game of blackjack or poker, uh, and and I think maybe early on it was the it was um, wanting to make money, but I think um, I really in, ultimately enjoyed digging down and understanding a company's fundamentals and finding the next big thing. What did your parents do? So my father, who passed away actually when I was young, uh, worked for the government. Um, when you uh, in were DC. how old? Um, I was ten years old. Yeah, and. Um, and uh, my mom um, has uh, worked in kind of the the the, the, the healthcare space. Uh, uh, most recently, um, she, my stepfather is a is an ENT doctor, and so she runs his office. What impact do you think uh, y- your father's uh, death had on you? At you know, it's you were you were ten. Um... It's it's one of those things that you know when I meet other people whose father passed away when they were young there's a there's there's certainly um there's an effect that has um I think it's mainly you know males where you really do grow up quickly and I I kind of find people in a similar spot they to be pretty driven they they tend to be you know successful in life and I and I think for me it really just kind of it 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 was a driver for me I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Barry Silbert, founder of Second Market, the largest exchange for buying and selling private alternative assets. The market for alternative assets is estimated to be roughly $52 trillion, and Second Market did more than $10 billion worth of trading since its inception in 2005. Second Market started trading in 2005, and there was a change in your business in 2007 that was facilitated by a Facebook employee coming to you. Can you describe what happened there? In 2007 uh, and in early 2008, we, we started getting approached by employees and former employees of some really big, well-known, successful companies. And so the first one that that really started all, all this off was um, a, an employee who left Facebook. He was one of the earliest employees there, and he wanted to, 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 to get some money so he could afford to, to live and to, I think, maybe buy a car or something. And so at the time, you know, we had this network of buyers of illiquid public equity. And he came to us because he said, well, if you can find buyers of illiquid public equity, maybe you could find a buyer for this illiquid Facebook stock. Private equity. Private. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we didn't, we were hopeful that we could, that we could find a buyer, but really kind of to our surprise, there were a lot of people, and these were primarily institutions that were willing to buy private company stock, Facebook in particular, without having any information about the company whatsoever. How much did this surprise you, the fact that you had these willing investors to buy the stock without access to meeting management or any informa- uh, financial information about the company? It, it was shocking. And, and, and then when it extended to other companies like LinkedIn and eHarmony and Twitter, um, we knew that, that there was a real opportunity here 
here, but we also knew that there was real risk because ultimately um, it's not a good investment strategy to make decisions without having information. Mm-hmm. And, and and what we learned over the next you know year or so is that the types of companies that people were willing to buy the stock in without having information was very it was few and far between. It mm-hmm. was you know I, I call those companies those are pull stocks. Those are stocks that people will they're just buying into the name and the momentum. But but there's only going to be a half a dozen to a dozen at any given time. The rest of the stocks are, are push stocks, and 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 in order to sell a push stock, you have to have information about that company. Okay, so Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, those are exceptions. Those are the pull stocks. What percent of your revenue uh, was from Facebook? So in the first in the first year, it was probably um, in the private market. It was probably 90% of our revenue. And then in the next year, it was probably 75%. And then it went down from there. And so what what ended up happening was um, what investors realized for the first time ever is that they could get involved in these companies before the IPO. They could get involved in these companies without having to have a relationship with a wealth manager at a firm where the minimum is well above what they can afford. So as investors started getting access to these companies, as people started being able to sell, our volumes exploded. Facebook announced its plans for IPO in spring 2012, and simultaneously, uh, Second Market laid off roughly 10% of its workforce. Is that coincidence? I would say it's, it's partially coincidence. I and mean, we, we clearly knew that Facebook was going public for a couple of years. And for us, it was just an opportunity to kind of to figure out what is the right structure and to um, unfortunately, you know, kind of let go a few people who just didn't fit within that new structure. Th- this is something you were going to do anyway. The, the Facebook going public was inevitable and um, as were the changes we wanted to make to our structure. Very political <laughs> way to say it. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, uh, even though it was or was not uh, Facebook related, you know, on the downside, the benefit to your relationship with Facebook is that the world recognized that you existed. Absolutely. I think back to the start of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, you know, the Facebooks of the time were the railroads or the banks. And there, there had to have been a company, an exciting company to get investors to care and to prove that a marketplace could exist. And Facebook just happened to be that market or that company. And honestly, I don't think we're ever going back to the days where companies can go public in four years, nor do they want to go public in four years. And at the very least, I know that second market is going to become the spring training. And I kind of look at it like um, a light switch, where um, historically speaking, going from private to public used to be off to on. And it's a big change for a company when really what should be happening is really more of a dial. A dimmer. Exactly. So you start off dark (laughs) and slowly over time, you know, on second market, maybe your market's open once a year and then the next year it's open twice a year and then you allow more investors in. And then you get to the point where you, you know, you're used to public reporting and you have the right investors involved and then you, you go IPO. I want to talk about the regulatory environment. You don't have an uncomplicated relationship uh, with with regulation. What is the risk that the SEC is intent on limiting second market trading as a way to you know circumvent regula- a regulatory framework? You have to break the regulation uh, topic down into probably two areas, and so there's the regulation of second market um, as a we're we're regulated with Finra, with the SEC, and all fifty states, and so that's that's regulation around us as a business, and then there's a whole other topic of regulation regulation around um, buying and selling private company stock and investing in companies. 
So on the first topic, on the regulation of second market, I mean, I'm proud to say that you know we have, as a business, have we've always been regulated. We've always been in, in, in a good spot with regulators. And then on the other side, on the regulation around this market, a number of rules um, have been proposed have been changed, and recently they were changed to make it easier for companies of all shapes and sizes to access capital. And as part of some of the rules, which were part of this, this Jobs mm-hmm. Act, mm-hmm. it enables um, private companies to stay private longer and go public when it makes most sense for them. So this is part of uh, the Jobs Act, or the Jumpstart Own Business Startups uh, legislation. And some of the changes are, instead of uh, 500 investors, a private company can have 2,000 investors. And the employees don't count anymore. Because what what, what used huh. to happen is, when a company had more than 499 shareholders, they had to essentially become a public company. They had to start registering with the SEC. And if you look at a lot of the big technology names, uh, Google, Microsoft, um, they went public not necessarily because they were ready to be a public company. They went public because of that cap, that hmm. 499 cap. And so under the Jobs Act, not only does that 499 go to 2000, but employee owners who used to count towards that cap no longer count anymore. Additionally, uh, the the act allows crowdsourcing or crowdfunding where uh, companies can raise money from the public online up to a million dollars. Right. What impact does that have on second market? I don't think the crowdfunding piece has any impact on second market necessarily. Because, you know, second market, um, um, as a regulated business, we, we can only allow um, sophisticated investors to buy stock and these other investments. And, so, and the way that the SEC determines sophistication, unfortunately, is based on your net worth or your income. You've mentioned before that uh, instead of a sophisticated investor, you'd like uh, participation to be enabled by people taking a financial literacy test. Absolutely. Yeah. So the way that the measurement works right now, it's based on um, you having a million dollars in net worth, um, excluding your home, or making $200,000 a year. And I know plenty of people who don't make nearly that much or have that much in assets who know a lot more than than even me uh, on uh, financial topics, and they would love to participate. And then on the other end, I know plenty of people who have a lot of money who just don't know or care enough about investing to be deemed a sophisticated investor. I want to bring it down a level. I want to take it from um, capital markets to bonsais. <laughs> Bonsai. So this is a hobby that I picked up about a year and a half ago. And I, I, I blame, I think it was CBS Sunday morning. I, I love the show. And they did a segment on, uh, bon, on the art of bonsai. It's the art of you know, shaping and sculpting a small tree. I mean, all I knew was Karate Kid, the movie Karate Kid. What I learned uh, is that bonsai is it's an approach that you can apply to any tree, any bush. You're essentially stunting the growth of of the plant, and you're using wires and you're using shears to shape and sculpt it, but it's really hard. I heard a rumor that you recently lost twenty to thirty pounds. <laughs> is that true? It, so, so twenty pounds is true, and this I blame on the Wall Street Journal. Mm. So, I um, was lucky enough to be um, interviewed and featured in what I think it's called the Weekend Interview. And in 2011. In 2011, yes. So as part of that 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 profile, um, they took my headshot, um, and the artist 
um, took some liberties with my headshot. <laughs> the, the the artist, I think, added about 150 pounds to my face. Oh, come on. <laughs> and so for me, that was kind of, that was my rock bottom moment. Because I, I asked my friends and my family and my wife, I said, am I am I this big? And and and, and they were like, well, you know, you could use, lose a few pounds. So um, I bought a book called Four Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. It works. And yeah, 20 pounds, 20 pounds in less than three months. What is the gist of the book? What does one have to do uh, to lose 20-ish pounds? Eat well, which includes cutting out pasta, rice, potato, um, eating protein, legumes, and vegetables, drinking a lot of water, doing that for six days, and then on the seventh day, you binge. You eat whatever you want, as much of it as you want, and then you repeat. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Barry Silbert, founder of Second Market. Coming up, we'll hear from Michael and Rick Mast, founders of Mast Brothers Chocolate. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. 